what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. Welcome back to Meet Bridget. We are so glad you're here for another very special interview episode. I'm Asha Gabriel, and Bridget is a confidence and communication platform for teen girls. Today, I am beyond honored to be interviewing my best friend, Bridget COO, Kashia Rosenberg. Aside from her work at Bridget, Kashia is the director of nursing for a private concierge healthcare company based in Los Angeles. Prior to specializing in concierge health, primary and preventative care, Kashia built a strong background in critical care nursing, perioperative nursing, and emergency medicine. A first-generation American, Kashia is an older sister, daughter, and friend who leads with empathy, education, and knowledge at the core of everything that she does. She's also a freelance creative writer and poet, and is working on an anthology of stories of motherhood in all of its iterations, as well as a screenplay adapted from the stories born of her own mother's imagination. Welcome, and we're excited for you guys to meet Kishia. Thank you, Ashi. Hi. <laughs> that was a really lovely intro. Thank you for saying all of those wonderful things. It is just a drop in the bucket of how amazing you are. So I'm so excited that we're here today and we're going to share your story. I'm excited. I'm nervous, excited, all of the things. All of the things. Well, good. Bring it all. Well, I'd love for us to start with your role at Bridget, what drew you to Bridget, and really what the role means to you. Oh, so much, all of the things. So at Bridget, I am the COO, as you mentioned. As a generalization, I take the lead on logistics organization, generally helping make things happen. But it's really been a journey. I began working on or at Bridget with you almost five years ago, almost at its inception. At the time, it was still a nonprofit, and I didn't really know it at the time, but it was something that you'd really just begun building. And I don't even think I realized this about myself, but I think there was this huge part of me at that time in my life, especially, that was searching for something not only purposeful, but that also allowed me to build something creatively. And I'm really, really lucky that Bridget was it. I don't know how I knew it was something I needed to be a part of, but I did. I have always felt so drawn to you as a friend, and it was really clear after I had first reached out. I think I, I saw a link on your Instagram, and I just said, hey, what is this Bridget Foundation thing that you're working on? And we realized how naturally and organically our work and communication styles came together. The mission of Bridget, you know, it's had so many iterations in terms of like what that's looked like, but it's always really to me been a place to provide a safe and open platform of community to teen girls. And it just started with this one spark that you wanted to create, Asha, that you wanted to create transparency and spark curiosity in young girls who weren't otherwise exposed to a broad multitude of examples. And we wanted to bring successful women from all professions into rooms with these girls and give them all an even playing field to network and learn from each other. And 
honestly, what better way to keep a sense of the market's pulse and future than to understand how the next generation is coming up and what better way to inspire than to create a safe place for girls where they understand that most limitations exist because of self-doubt or lack of exposure or representation. And, you know, we begun with events and it grew to workshops and summits and internships, you name it. And, you know, COVID changed the way we had to do things, but here we are. Anything and everything that we do, you and I have had to learn how to kind of do it together and do it in a way that's scrappy and flexible. And so often you're the ideas person where you say like, this is the overall goal. This is where we want to get our girls. This is what I, you know, we want to see happen. We want to put together like a summit or we want to put together an event. And in the past, like naturally I've just been the person that helps build that framework out, helps create organization of that, helps kind of just drive the process forward as you guide it with the ideas and the creativity and the overall goal and aesthetic and feeling and vibe of it. So that's been the great thing about it is that we've learned how to grow and work together while also creating something that provides this huge value for our teen girls. I mean, over the years, we've heard from so many girls and actually so many women, like everyone that's been a part of our events have turned around and said that we've provided a value or that they wish that there was something like this when they were younger. And um, so it's been really great. It's been something that's not only been fun to build, but incredibly rewarding and just such a, a joy in my life. One thing I feel like it has been so kind of just gratifying to watch as you've worked with Bridget is how how you've brought in your sister Kara that she's interned with us and I I I mean correct me if I'm wrong but I feel like part of your motivation with Bridget is that kind of big sister energy that you've had obviously with your real sister but you know just with girls in general that you've been able to kind of get feedback through her on what we're doing but also like making that role that you already play like so much bigger is that a thing I think that you're on to something. I am the oldest of four kids. Kara is the third of us. She's actually eight years younger than me. And that's always been such a huge part of my identity. I mean, I was six years old when my mom had my younger brother, Adam, eight when she had Kara and 16 when she had David. And growing up, I, you know, we come from a huge family as it is. And so I think there's a part of that that was ingrained in me. Like there's a sense of tribalism growing up in a big uh, first generation American family. So especially when my younger siblings were born, I felt this immediate draw and need to be an example, a protector, a teacher. And that really has translated into the work we've done at Bridget. When Bridget was starting out, I think Kara was probably, she was about 17 years old, and she was in this place where she was trying to figure out what she wanted to do with life. And our relationship had actually started to evolve because before that, you know, she was a little too young to relate to me, and I was a little too old to be relatable to her. And we just hit this sweet spot. And in bringing her into Bridget, it's been incredible because we've gotten to do it together. We've gone incredibly close together over the, you know, especially over the years, we've understood each other more as young women. And being a part of Bridget, we get to share that with a lot of the girls that we're with. And my sister's been able to share some of her experiences moving from high school into college. And I've gotten to, you know, share my stories with our girls as well. So that's been incredibly rewarding. Totally. I think some of like our best feedback too has come from Kara feeling safe with 
giving us that feedback or saying like, hey, like actually I think this approach would work better with our teens if we do it this way. And I, I've been so honored that she's been, felt comfortable, you yeah. know, to give us that. And I think that's because you're such a good big sister to her. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. She's definitely her own person and I've learned so much from her, but you're exactly right. You get this really great, fresh perspective and point of view and just sort of like a third eye on everything. And so that's been really awesome. And so it's been a gift to have her be a part of this for sure. So you have had that big sister role. I do know that your mom was also a big sister, but maybe even in a bigger bigger context. Can you tell us a little bit about your mom, her background? Yes. So I have a big family and that is an understatement. Uh, Like I said, I'm first generation American. Um, My background's a little, I don't want to say complicated, but it's definitely eclectic and interesting. My mom is the third of eight kids. Her family emigrated from the Philippines when she was nine years old in, I think the early seventies and they emigrated to San Francisco. And so she just has a huge family. There's six girls, two boys, and my grandparents who work their butts off to provide for all of these kids and and her grandmother as well. So like huge family living under one house with like one bathroom and, you know, two rooms between like 10 people. So... So my mom has a really big family and they had like a very, I wouldn't say typical immigrant experience, but they moved to San Francisco in the early 70s. My grandfather was actually an alcoholic at the time, so the family was quite dysfunctional. But through all of that, one of the things that has always persisted in my family, especially on my mom's side, is this like tribal sense of family comes first, blood is thicker than water, like everybody takes care of everybody from older sister down. And there's this real sense of, you know, everyone takes care of one another. And that's persisted throughout their generation through the generations of myself and my 17 cousins and the subsequent 11, you know, great grandchildren now that are running around. So there are a lot of us, but that's always been a huge part of my identity and my life. My biological dad is actually from Japan and that's, that's a whole story in and of itself. But, um, can we talk about it a little bit? Of course. So my mom, we're going to go real deep here, but when my mom was in her early 20s, her younger sister actually committed suicide. And uh, a big part of that was my grandfather's alcoholism, and it's changed the, the history and trajectory of my family forever. I mean, it was incredibly traumatizing and painful. And, you know, I think when something big like that happens in your family, especially being as close knit as they were, like they're all only a year, maybe a year and a half apart from each other. So they're all very close in age. And, um, you know, that PTSD has sort of transcended generations because you feel the hurt no matter what, no matter how far it goes. But after my aunt passed away, everyone was dealing with the grief in their own way. And the way that my mom dealt with it was she needed to kind of start over and she needed a fresh start. My mom is one of these incredible people that in the face of adversity, she just keeps going. Like she finds the next step, how to put one foot in front of the other and she'll just go for the next adventure. And it's a very protective trait, but that brought her to 
deciding that she was going to be in Japan. She got scouted, I think. She was working somewhere in San Francisco and she got scouted by a woman who said, I have like a modeling position Mm -hmm. and a jazz career for you in Japan if you're interested. And (laughs) I don't know how my mom vetted if this was safe or not. Luckily, it turned out to be a kosher experience, but she left San Francisco not long after with $50 in her pocket from her baby brother and made it to Japan and started a career as a jazz like lounge singer and she did some modeling and she learned Japanese and she, you know, made friends and had this whole life and eventually met my biological dad and got married and had, you know, she was flying back and forth. She had me in San Francisco because my mom was always very adamant that I be an American citizen. And she subsequently ended up divorcing my dad because of cultural differences. And my mother is a very independent person. And I think she always saw herself leading her own life and never wanted to be held down by somebody who, for lack of a better word, would kind of see her as subservient based off of their culture at the time. So she made a decision that ultimately brought her back to the United States. And she raised me until she met my dad, Benjamin, who then adopted me at five years old. And so I have grown up with this incredible father who is also the the dad of my three younger siblings. And it's been a wild ride. <laughs> I just think it's it's such a beautiful thing. I remember at your wedding, seeing your dad, your adoptive dad, but you're really your dad, um, walk you down the aisle. And, you know, as we became closer and closer, and I, and I learned about him and how, what a wonderful just presence he's been in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about like as a five-year-old, like, did you fully like know what was happening there? So I actually did. It's, it's so weird. My mom always said I was an old soul and I, I hate to be the person that's like, I was an old soul, but I used to literally have memories of myself as an older woman. And when I was a kid, like three years old, I would tell my mom, I remember being here, but it was when I was older. And I'd like have these memories and she would just be so weirded out. But my mom's a very spiritual person too, (laughs) at the risk of sounding crazy. Like these are things that I thought when I was younger, whether or not they're true or you believe in whatever reincarnation, what I don't know, but I would have these like memories of being an older woman. So there was always a side of me as a young child and growing up where I was just hyper aware of my surroundings. And part of that might be because, you know, it was just my mom and I for a couple years. And then my mom was working full time. Like she was busting her ass to like make sure I was always taken care of, that I learned how to read really early, that I was in school. Like she was super mom. And you know, but she was also like a really young, really beautiful woman. And so naturally, like she dated. And I remember meeting some of the people that she dated and just hating them. Like there was a brief second where they like try to get me to buy into this, like, hey, I'm the guy that's taking your mom out on a date. And I remember even being like three, four years old and just being like, ugh gross. And I would tell her. And then she meets my dad. She was working on the set of a movie that my dad was assistant directoring on. And he was like, my dad was like very focused on his work, but somebody pointed my mom out because she was like young and hot. And I mean, she's still young and hot, but like reverse ages. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And So my dad like goes up and he's like, hey, do you want a piece of gum? And that was it. They were married literally three months later. And I remember meeting him for the first time and I don't know what it was, but I met him and it just felt 
right. Like I didn't hate him. I thought he was so charming, so funny. There was something about his smile that felt so genuine and warm. And it was like, it's hard to explain. It sounds so cheesy, but it's like your my soul just like felt in its right place. And like, I felt like my mother was safe. Ultimately, yeah. I think that's what it was. It's like, you feel like the person you love is in a safe place. I'm not going to lie. Like growing up was challenging because you're, you know, a 40-year-old guy without kids or any knowledge of raising kids. My dad's also an only child, so he'd never really been exposed like my mom and, you know, my family was. So we had to get to know each other over the years and figure it out. And it was a, a very gratifying, interesting, sometimes painful experience of like figuring out how to be a daughter and for him trying to figure out how to be a dad. And, um, you know, also you have the complexity of having an adopted child. And so it, it, it was um, a very colorful but wonderful upbringing. I feel like mixed families are becoming more and more common. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, once your siblings came into the picture um, with your dad and your mom, obviously it's their parents, just like that dynamic. Did you, was that complex in any way? What was your Oh man. So I was six when Adam was born and people that have been around me and my family intimately, which, you know, really hasn't been that many people except for my closest friends and, you know, the people that were at our wedding will laugh because I geek out over my siblings. I'm obsessed with them. And I've always been obsessed with them. Like even when you have the normal sibling rivalry and you get annoyed, when my brother was born, it was like an angel baby was born. I remember him coming home from the hospital and like the sunlight coming through the door <laughs> and like seeing him in his car seat for the first time. And I used to like crawl into their cribs and like fall asleep with my siblings because every single one of them and still to this day and always, they've all been a huge blessing. But like I could tell you what Adam, Kara, and David smelled like when they were babies, what they acted like, like every memory is imprinted on me. And I've like, when I say I love being a big sister, it's a gift. And especially now that they're all older and they have their own personalities and hopes and dreams and aspirations and senses of humor, it's like the best. It's like a party whenever I'm with them, even when we're arguing, even when they're being <laughs> shits, like, <laughs> like so, uh, yeah, it's, um, I have had moments in my life where I felt, you know, naturally being adopted by my dad and, you know, only having the same biological mother. There have been times where I've questioned whether my dad's loved me as much as he's loved the other kids or whether like Adam, Cara and David look at me as their older sister. But I've asked them before, you know, I can be a little dark and dramatic. So I've said, like, <laughs> you love me. And they're just like, they roll their eyes. They're like, yeah, I've known you since the day I was born. I don't see you as anything else. So <laughs> honestly, that's one of the sides of you that I love the most is that you're you're such you're like your mom in that you are the kind of person that like when adversity strikes you find a way through and you have this like incredible grace and like you also have the reverse aging thing that happens oh but you also ha you have this um ability to like cut through intense awkward or or negative situations with that like uh, that dark side kind of but it but it, it comes it is really a, a vulnerability and an ability to like ask the questions that matter and really break things down I totally see that as a strength in you thank you I um it's hard to pinpoint any one thing that's 
brought me to that. I, I wouldn't necessarily think about myself being that way, but I do, you know, I think that coming from a family where trauma has like this undercurrent in it and having subsequent things that have happened that are difficult, like, you know, re-meeting my biological dad. We can talk about that a little bit more later if you want, but, you know, a lot of things have happened in my life that have been painful and scary. And I realize through all of those things, like, I've had my moments of having panic attacks and being super anxious and being like, oh God, what's going to happen next? Mm -hmm. But the reality is that like I've always ended up being okay. It's like right before you take that deep breath and you're holding your breath and you're like, shit, I don't know what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden you take the deep breath and you're like, okay, I can keep going. Like this happened and we just have to figure out what that next step is. So, I mean, that's the way I live. I've lived my entire life. Like we moved a lot. I've just learned like there's no way to be except to adapt otherwise you stay still and stagnant that that's where mold grows so yeah, no one likes mold, no one likes mold. <laughs> well can we actually talk a little bit about um meeting your biological dad yeah sure so i my parents were always incredibly transparent when i was growing up you know my mom even through the entire adoption process like Benjamin really wanted to adopt me. And we knew it would be a lengthy process, but I also really wanted him to adopt me. I didn't have a strong relationship with my biological father because he was all the way in Japan. There's a language barrier. And that's just, you know, he also wasn't present. And so when my mom met Benjamin, it was like, I knew that I loved him immediately. And I would run around telling people, this is my dad. This is going to be my dad. And like, even in school, I'd be like, this is my dad. You should just start saying that my last name's Rosenberg because it's going to happen. And they'd be like, legally, we can't do that. Like, you still have to use <laughs> your legal name. And it was so frustrating for like a year because the adoption process is pretty lengthy. Mm -hmm. But it finally went through and my entire life, my parents were just like, we need you to know you're loved. I, my dad would say, I need you to know I love you, you know, just as much as I love my other kids. Sometimes he'd joke and be like, you're my favorite, even though I know my dad loves us all equally. But he really made an effort to drive that point home that he loved me as if I were his biological child. And so they, the other side of that is that they would tell me, like, your dad in Japan has two other kids. Like, he's married. He has a daughter. He has a son. And so in my personal history, those were things I knew to be true. Well, uh, you know, cut to moving junior highs, high schools, going through, like, the throes of being an awkward teen. I was bullied quite a bit. And then I get to college and I'm, you know, coming out of this terrible relationship. And my mom, who is basically a clairvoyant, calls me while I'm in college. I had like was just finishing my semester and is like, I had this feeling that I needed to call your grandparents in Japan. And she's like, so I called them. So she remembered because she's my mom, she remembered the house phone number for the house that my Japanese grandparents lived in for the last like several decades, somehow remembered it, called and said, I was thinking about you guys, how's everything going? And she finds out that my paternal grandfather is dying of cancer. And as she's getting off the phone with my paternal grandmother, my paternal grandmother asks how I'm doing. And so my mom had like this lightning bolt go off and she and my dad 
you know, talk about this, they call me, they're like, do you want to go meet him? Because if you want to meet him, now is the time. And without even skipping a beat, I think I was just like, yes, I got to do it. Like I am a balls to the wall person, most of the time, all or nothing. So most of the time I make these impulsive decisions (laughs) and (laughs) luckily I've been okay. But this is one of those times where I was like, yes, let's do it. Was on a plane less than a week later, landed Japan and get this phone call. I was supposed to stay with one of my mom's friends from back when she was living in Japan so that it was like a safe, smooth, like introductory transition. Why land off this 12 hour flight and get this phone call, by the way, she's sick. Lynn is sick. Like you can't stay with her. You have to go straight to your grandmother's house. And I'm basically like the facade comes down, like the sky comes crashing down. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm across the world in Japan. I don't speak Japanese. I don't know these people. And now I'm going to be staying with them and we'll be meeting my birth father shortly. And It was a wild experience because, you know, I got to spend some time with my uncle who was wonderful and gracious and his children were wonderful and gracious. And my biological dad just like wasn't showing up for a couple of days. And then he shows up and I realized like he had never told his children about me. So his wife knew, of course, but his children had no idea that he'd ever been married before, had no idea that they had a sister. And so he had been delaying meeting me because he was having to uncover this part of his life that his children had no idea about. So it was an immersive experience to say the least. It was very emotional. Um, Initially they were like, his kids were really apprehensive about meeting me, but it, it ended on a very sweet note because I got to spend, you know, the better half of the week with him and his children and his wife and they were very welcoming and, you know, we had some quality time where we got to talk about things. And I realized on that trip, like there were a lot of emotions that I was probably withholding, like as a kid, like all of these questions, all of that, you know, self-doubt about whether Benjamin, my dad loved me or my, you know, figuring out what my place in the world was, like all of those things existed, but I do have this natural instinct to just put one foot in front of the other. So I had like never dealt with it. So it was incredibly emotional. I wish I could say that we were still in contact, but shortly after I left Japan, his family and I think his his wife and mostly like didn't want to be involved. So they like changed all their emails and like contact information. And so that was like the second like salt, the salt in the moon again. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, so it was, it was very interesting. And, And now we have Instagram and Facebook and I am friends with some of my Japanese family, but it's, it's not like a, it's not like a close situation. Like I wish it were, it is really nice to see them all doing well, but it definitely was quite an experience and was very formative for me in a lot of ways. Totally. I can only imagine going through something so emotionally complex where it's it's dealing with not only your past, but also like what is my future context for all of these different people, you know, that are related to me, but have such different connections. Oh, really. it, it's so wild. Like it was so wild being there. It was like an out-of-body experience, but then you're also uncovering all of these emotions and things about yourself that you didn't even realize to be true about yourself. Like there were all all of this anxiety, all of this depression, all of this like lack of 
knowing or or actually like really believing that I belonged anywhere or believing that I was lovable in a way just because of that like lack of a relationship with a biological father. And it was a really weird time for me because on the one hand, I have so much love and respect and gratitude for all of the abundance I have in my life that I think part of me was kind of ramping down this, you know, sadness that also existed. And it was it was a huge period of growth because that's where I kind of started to realize that people are, you know, not 2D. Like you can be rich and complex and have a huge amount of gratitude and love and satisfaction with your life, but you're also allowed to feel sad and you're allowed to feel anxious about things at the same time. Like we can have 15 different emotions going on at the same exact time. And that's really when I started realizing that and and being able to accept that that is just a natural part of life. And so it was, it was a very interesting time for me. Yeah. I feel like often like our, some of our teen girls express that they feel that pressure to be something 2D. Like, mm-hmm. who am I? What are the things that people are going to define me as? How are people going to see me? And it's almost like creating a list of, of boxes that you're going to check. But I can just like visualize you, you know, being faced with that challenge and, and really not seeing it as an option mm-hmm. faced with all of these different emotional things that you were dealing with. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk just about your your relationships in life. I know and love your husband, Kevin. He is he is such an amazing, just loyal, friendly, sincere guy. And what I love about your relationship is that when I see you two together, I feel like I can see you being your full 3D self with him, that he's the kind of person that brings out every different color and flavor of Kashia, whether it's in those high, like happy moments, in your, you know, darker sides, like all of the different aspects of you, I feel like you can bring to the table with him. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with him and maybe some past relationships that that led to where you are? Yeah, absolutely. I um I Kevin is a good egg. <laughs> um, but it took a lot to get there, truthfully. I mean, I had I gotta backtrack a little bit. Like we moved so much that I was constantly having to readapt and reinvent myself. Or so I thought, like every school. Cause I'd like start elementary school at one school and then halfway through be somewhere else, and then middle school somewhere else, high school somewhere else. And so especially during like my early teen years, we lived in this little tiny town in California called Agua Dulce. And I was literally one of maybe five ethnic BIPOC people at all. Like there was maybe two black kids, maybe one other Filipino girl, and then, you know, me. And yes, that was like it. So people didn't really know what to do with us. People especially didn't know what to do with me when I had a Jewish dad and a Filipino mom who's very exotic looking. My dad was away for work all the time because he worked in film. And so it was just like very atypical for this particular area. So I got bullied a lot. Um, Looking back, I don't think that I really took too much of it to heart. I think I tried to take everything with levity and grace. But it was internally a tumultuous time for me because I was trying to figure out where I stood. Meanwhile, like getting along with everybody, but also being called everything in the book from like Jap to gook to like words I can't even repeat. Like 
I would never repeat about like Jewish people. And I even got called a communist by my homeroom teacher. And that's when my dad, my dad found out. Yeah. My dad found out and then decided like, we need to move because this is ridiculous. It was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And, um, So, you know, I was really trying to figure out who I was in this context of other people telling me who I should be or who they thought I was. And unfortunately, part of that time in my life was entering into this relationship with an older boy. I was 15 and he was 21 and I met him at my first job working at the local flower shop and he was just a very advantageous person and I, you know, was like the older bad boy and I didn't tell my parents about him because I knew in my head, I knew there was like something wrong and off limits about this and I, I wish I had told them because they would have put the kibosh on it right away but I ended up secretly dating this guy for three years before my parents found out. And the last year was incredibly rough because they found out and it was this big, huge deal. I had destroyed trust with them. I had been sneaking around and I'm not proud of this, but, um, you know, like I said, it was, you think you're so mature at that time. And he was an adult, frankly, and he was being very advantageous with the fact that I was younger and it it slowly morphed into this very verbally abusive relationship where there was a lot of jealousy. He was a pathological liar in my book and, you know, would tell me a lot of things about myself that weren't true because he was cheating on me. So he'd like make it out to be that I was like crazy. And because I was younger, you know, I believed in that. So we were going back and forth playing this role of I was the crazy, young, jealous, like immature one. No one would ever love me again. I was ugly. I was this, I was that. And you go through this cycle of verbal abuse and you start to believe these things about yourself because the one person you think you love in the world is telling you these things about yourself. And it it took the truth coming out to my parents and them kind of, you know, over time rewiring my brain and being like, these are the reasons that this is not right. This is, you know, a completely inappropriate relationship. And it also took me, you know, graduating and maturing and having this experience with my father, my biological father, to realize that there was a whole world and a whole life out there and all these other issues and and problems. And that being with somebody who tells you things about yourself that are not true and takes advantage of you and, you know, is just the wrong toxic person for you. It took all of that for me to realize like, wow, I need to wake up and be on my own and figure out who I am as a, as a person and where I stand in the world and what's important to me. And I need to start rebuilding the things that I believe about myself because from that relationship, from, of course, like the childhood, you know, these childhood beliefs that you develop, you know, I went into my 20s thinking I was ugly, that no one was ever going to love me, that I was stupid, that I'd never have friends, you know. And I look back and I think about it now and I'm like, wow, that's like another lifetime ago. That is wild. Like that's a totally different person. So it's a wonder because after that relationship, I spent a lot of time trying to be single trying to sport fish, as my dad would call it. He would say, you need to go out, catch a lot of fish, date everyone, do everything, figure out what you like, what you don't like, who you are as a person. Because at the end of the day, like no one should sweep you off your feet. You are not a princess. Like you are the heroine of your own life. Like my dad was amazing in that way. He was 
the original OG feminist without even realizing it. And my mom was just like the example of that in the way that mm -hmm. she lives and, and breathes and does everything. So Kevin and I actually, we met while I was, you know, dating somebody else and I had the blinders on and he just kind of snuck in. We were friends for a while. And one Memorial Day, almost like 10 years ago, he came over to my house on a whim. My parents were, it was just my parents and my siblings and some of their friends. And I realized like, I really like this guy. He's just such a funny, like handsome, like I, it was like, I'd never seen him before. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, the sun, like, yeah <laughs> I was like, like who is this no but and and it's you know it hasn't been easy like we've grown up together and our our marriage has been challenging at times but it is one of the most rewarding relationships in my life because like the relationships with my parents and I I attribute this to them that like honesty to a fault and transparency to a fault is the same way that I function in my marriage with Kevin. And so it's made the hard times <laughs> intense because we've never held back. Like I've never held back from him anything that I'm feeling if we've needed to fix things. Like we've had long conversations about them and and vice versa. And so for those reasons, it's like, it, it's incredible because I get to truly say we make a choice to be partners every single day. And that's, it's, it makes it so much more layered and rich and complex and wonderful to be um, in a partnership in a marriage like that. Totally. And that it's, you're not having to harbor anything unsaid. Yeah. I'm sure sometimes he wants to kill me, but <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. You're just wonderful. Um, but you know, the, the, that no resentment builds in your relationship because of that, like transparency and dealing with everything wholly mm -hmm. as it comes. Let's take a break to talk about something incredibly important, coffee, and not just any coffee, Drew coffee. Founded by Daniela Monet's life partner, Andrew Gardner. Roasted once monthly and delivered for peak freshness, sustainably sourced beans arrive ready to go and ready to get you going. Drew Coffee is offered 25% off for our listeners' first order with code Bridget, B-R-I-D-G-E-T. Go and enjoy that drip drip. Can you talk a little bit about any experiences that you guys have had, whether it was like individual things that you went through as a couple or just challenging times in either of your lives? You know, there have been a lot. I mean, at this point, Kevin and I have known each other the better part of a decade. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, actually start <laughs> how I knew Kev was like a real one. Um, in the early part of our relationship, that, and this is mortifying, but I'm going to share it because I hope that some young girl going through anything like this uses this as sort of like a jumping off point or a jumping off lesson. But I had left that awful relationship and what had moved on with my life. And I was, you know, halfway or almost done with college. And I get a phone call one day from one of my cousins and he is just mortified. And he's like, I need to talk to you. It's super private. I need to make sure that you're alone. And um, I'm really embarrassed to share this with you. But he had found a photograph of me on a pornographic website. And I was probably 16 at the time that the photo was taken. Like, I didn't even remember this photo being taken. And yeah. it was clearly this person 
and he's the only person that would have anything like that. And that's, I wouldn't never do anything like that outside of my relationships. But I mean, some people do. It's, you know, those things are private to you. You own your body, you own what you do with your body and nobody should be judgmental, but nobody ever has the rights to it except for you. And, you know, I was a child when these photographs were taken and I thought I was in love and all of a sudden, you know, years later, here they are resurfacing and a family member is seeing them. So immediately go to this and like within days, I get a phone call, almost the same thing from this time, a classmate. And now I'm like really mortified, ashamed of myself, like writing all of these companies saying, you have to take this down. It's child pornography. I do not consent. Of course, they all took it down immediately, but it was like, once something's on the internet, it's on the internet. And it takes a long time for those things to be removed from the internet. It's like nothing you do is sacred anymore and you have to be very, very careful. And this was even more of an insult because I had nothing to do with putting it out there except, you know, being in a relationship and thinking I was safe at the time. And so, you know, I had to file a claim with the police department, tell my parents about it, which was mortifying, like sitting down at the breakfast table and telling my dad that this was going on. Luckily, he was super supportive. He was even like, do you want me to take this guy out? And I was like, no, dad, (laughs) you are not in the mafia. Like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but so when Kevin and I were starting our relationship, this was like looming over my head and it was like almost finished, but I was getting these phone calls and I had to tell him there's this thing that I'm dealing with and it's incredibly mortifying and I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed. And I don't think that you deserve to date somebody like this. And I don't at the time still was kind of like, I don't think I deserve to date anybody. I don't know who wants this. I'm damaged goods. And From the beginning of our relationship to this very day, Kevin has always been a person who has been very transparent and loving and supportive, but I remember him just holding my hand and giving me a hug and being like, it's going to be okay, and if there's anything I can do, I'm here, and like, has only ever told me the truth about myself and loving things since that day and every day forward. And so that's one way I knew he was a real one. And the other way is actually much more recent. We got pregnant December of last year, uh, 2020, and we were not expecting it. And I myself have always like had this recurring theme in my life where there's like this little evil part of me inside the very back of my head that's like, you don't deserve this. And (laughs) I think that motherhood in a lot of ways, I'd kind of written it off because I was like, oh, I don't really think that I should be anyone's mom. Like, at least not right now. Like, later, later. It'll come later. And so we got pregnant in December and I wasn't expecting it. We weren't trying. And it was like the second it happened, I remember my first react, like the first words out of my mouth were, oh shit. (laughs) And Kevin was actually in the room with me. And then it was like, wait, we can do this. And for three months, I had the most magical time of my life. I, um, everything about my world changed. I think that motherhood for me and learning that about myself was such a blessing. Um, 
And so it was really hard because at almost three months, like 11 and so weeks, I found out that the pregnancy wasn't viable and I'd actually had what's called a missed abortion or a missed miscarriage where my body had started to get rid of the pregnancy naturally, but I didn't bleed. I wasn't having any symptoms. And so it was really sad because I went in for my ultrasound thinking, you know, I'm going to hear my baby's heartbeat. And then there was like nothing there. So that was very, very hard. And I struggled with it a lot because I take care of my body really well. Like I said, I'm really balls to the wall. I love my scars. I hate living in fear. So I try to like rise to challenges, whether it's like cliff diving or teaching myself how to skateboard. Like I've always been kind of a tomboy like that. Um, Maybe not so much in this like last year or so because of an old injury. But part of this like unspoken agreement with myself to balance out that little demonish part of me back there who's like telling me all these things that aren't true is that I take care of myself by eating well, I exercise regularly, I try to be gentle with myself. Um, And so when I got pregnant, it was like this whole alternate future unfolded for me. And all of a sudden I understood the idea of legacy and all of a sudden anything anyone had ever said about children being the future like came into full view. So it was like this lightning bolt of a gift and it was like this really quiet, magical, time because no one except for my immediate family and some of my very close friends knew. You know, I was writing to my baby every morning and Kev and I would like talk about the future and we had all these hopes and dreams built out. So when it happened, it was really, really difficult. And it also wasn't an easy experience for my body. Like it didn't do anything the way one would expect things to naturally happen. Like I didn't know I was having a miscarriage. I had a procedure that same day that I had my ultrasound and that we found out two weeks later wasn't complete. So I had to take a medication to try and, you know, finish the rest of it. And that was extremely painful and also didn't work. So I eventually ended up having to have surgery. I ended up having to get scoped. It was, you know, it was, it was really tough because it was like my body was in this holding pattern. And for Kev, it was hard because he was so emotionally invested in the pregnancy, but also, of course, emotionally invested in being supportive to me. He had like started to come up with names and like ideas for the future and stuff. So when this happened, I know he was equally heartbroken. But I think there's this part, especially with loss and early pregnancy, where usually the partner, whoever's not carrying the baby, you know, might have a hard time understanding from a physical perspective what it feels like and what that person's going through. And I think for him, that was definitely the case. And for him, he's like trying to be there, but there's a sense of helplessness because you can't do anything. (laughs) So that was incredibly hard. But again, it was one of those periods of time in our life together and in our partnership together where I could look at him and just see how present he was trying to be, how invested he was in building something together, and how he, you know, as a partner was constantly open to me communicating how I was feeling. And that's that was really important. That is really important. That's one of the reasons that I love him because despite all of like the craziness, like any family dysfunction, any physical hardship, like that's, you know, in my head, like that's what I want 
and a partner is that person that you can say, okay, let's troubleshoot this together and we'll figure it out. And you tell me what to do and I'll tell you how I can be there. And, and so I'm really lucky that we have grown to be able to have a partnership like that. It was definitely painful, but a hard one lesson for sure. Yeah. I mean, you going through this was just one of the worst things I could ever imagine. As a friend, I feel like that, you know, just the hurt. I, I felt it a little tiny fraction of it on, on your behalf, you know, um, as a friend, but I do think it's so important. And I so appreciate you sharing this, um, with our audience because I think that miscarriage is a very real thing that, that happens. And I think that women, you know, as the mothers of the world, we, we go through so, so much and it doesn't always look like it does in the movies. And, um, it's not one linear progression from like baby girl to glowing mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important that we, that we talk about those in-between moments and the real emotions and physical experiences. A hundred percent. I, um, I actually can't even credit all of my reaction to myself or even just Kevin, to be honest, like we had a really horrible loss last year. One of my best friends, Stephanie from childhood, she married my cousin and they were pregnant and lost, you know, my niece Juniper when she was full term. And that was incredibly traumatic and difficult and painful for all of us. I think Juniper was really the first spark where I I felt like, oh, maybe I could really be a mom. Like maybe this is what I want. Um, she really inspired like that part of me to kind of start waking up. But Stephanie and Nicholas have been an example of strength and they've reignited and taught me and I'm sure so many people what strength looks like and what what grief looks like and what it feels like to be going through something and be able to take time for themselves and to also educate other people about grief. And so I, you know, in going through this loss, I felt so much support from that. I felt a lot of support from a lot of the people that we loved, but I really credit my part of my personal journey to looking at this you know, woman that I call family and just knowing that if you put one foot in front of your, in front of the other and you lean into each other, you don't have to carry it by yourself that, um, you know, she reminded me that it's not my fault. You reminded me to be gentle with my body, which was a huge gift um, and came exactly at the moment that I needed it. And um, that it's okay to talk about this because I, like I said earlier, I am incredibly grateful for all of the good things in my life. But yeah, I'm still sad that I lost my baby, just like, you know, Stephanie is incredibly successful in a lot of different parts of her life. But Juniper is her daughter and is always going to be a part of our lives. And so it's incredible to have these examples, however painful. I mean, obviously, given the alternative, we would take it in the heartbeat. But to be able to have that experience and to have learned that we can sit with grief and we can talk about grief and we can talk about the people that we loved and lost and we can talk about babies that didn't get to be born in the way that they should have been and you know that those things are important too like talking 
about pregnancy in a real way is just as important as um, celebrating our living babies and celebrating all of our successes. I really am a firm believer that you have to experience life fully. And that means also being able to sit with the truth of the really hard things. Um, and that that's honestly what, what makes the good things so meaningful. I, I feel like there's such a strong theme in your story of, you know, that putting one foot in front of the other uh, mentality. But I think that sometimes we can gloss over that as just meaning moving on, Mm -hmm. you know, I I can get through things, just get right through them Mm -hmm. and keep moving. And especially with you, I feel like it's, it's really not that it's like taking one step and, and a next and a next doesn't mean you're moving past everything that's happened to you, but it's, it's moving with everything that's happened happened around you to you for you and and building on each experience into this beautiful tapestry of love loss experience and everything in between and then when you share it with you know your friends family loved ones with Bridget this community of women it becomes part of an even bigger more full tapestry that serves everyone involved so I I so see that as a as a theme in your story I do want to get to some of your uh, career pursuits. And I think that it actually ties into this because your work in healthcare, I think that so many people or a trend that I see in a lot of people that that have careers in healthcare is that ability to, I wouldn't say absorb, but like experience the situations and experiences of, of patients that they're working with have compassion, relate to them enough to really give them care, but also wake up the next day and do it again and do it again and do it again. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, your, your ba- obviously you've worked um, with me on Bridget for gosh, probably going on six years yeah, now. Yeah, um, it has been for a long time had this, you know, incredible healthcare career. So can we talk a little bit about that? Of course. Um, so I, <laughs> it's crazy. You never life never totally pans out the way that you think it's going to. I think as a kid, I always said I wanted to be a doctor because there's that part of you as the oldest child and trying to figure out your place where you say things, or at least I did, that, you know, we're supposed to be impressive, like to adults. Like there was a huge part of my childhood that was very performative because I wanted to be this example. And so part of that was like, I want to be a doctor. And then when my siblings were born, I was like, oh, maybe I'll be an OBGYN. But there was never like a fallback, um, even though I had all of these other interests. Later, I realized that I love storytelling and that I am a writer and that I love writing. And so I figured out how to tie that into everything else I'm doing. But when I was graduating high school and I'm coming out of this crazy relationship and like on the verge of meeting my dad, my my mom's dad was actually passing away from cancer at the time and I was helping take care of him. It was just a very full tumultuous time in my life. And so I was really on the back burner and I was just like, okay, well, I got this great scholarship to a private school in Los Angeles. I had recently moved for my senior year of high school to Granada Charter High, which was a giant school. So I went from this tiny high school to this huge high school, knew nobody, like made only a handful of friends, but like, you know, senior year people are are pretty much established. And so going into college, like getting into a smaller private school when I, you know, I, I had the grades to go 
anywhere else. I got into, you know, a couple great UCs, including UCLA. And I just, I didn't even pursue it. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even tell my parents about it. I was like, no, I'm going to go to the small school in Los Angeles and, you know, kind of start from scratch. And I got into the nursing program, which is a traditional bachelor's. And I, I did that. And I also double majored in English because I was starting to realize that that was like my one true love. I've always been an avid reader and um, very creative. And so that that naturally fit my need for creativity and for um, something more left brain. But I was in this nursing program and I hated it. <laughs> I didn't like my personality, like I, I am more type A now, but as a learned type A, um, I just, you know, I made friends. I, I've always gotten along with people my entire life, but the personality styles were very different. You had these super competitive, very academic kids who are basically going after what Guinness Book of World Records called the most difficult undergraduate bachelor's degree at that time, or I, I know that's redundant, but the most difficult bachelor's degree at that time because of all of the testing and all, all of the different things that you need to pass in order to become a registered nurse. I was just kind of like trying to figure myself out. And so it was really weird because I was getting straight A pluses in like my English program and then just kind of like doing okay in the nursing program. <laughs> but I ended up always having a natural um, predisposition to establishing relationships with patients and creating really strong rapport with my peers. And that really got me through. And I made it through this nursing program through hell or high water. Like there were multiple times I wanted to quit to the point that I almost even failed out of the program a couple times. I was not vibing with this program at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it because in my head, I was like, I have to finish this. I started it. I have right. to finish it. I just felt like I, I needed one thing in my life to like be the stable thing. And so I did it and I finished it. I worked through the last part of college while I was, you know, also finishing my degrees. And I was keeping myself really distracted by this like insane productivity. So I went straight from college into work at St. John's, which is a great community hospital in Los Angeles. I worked in oncology. I worked in women's health. I worked in periop. I got a second job working as a periop nurse after I graduated and worked with a, a renowned plastic surgeon on tons of interesting cases. And I ended up working in the emergency room, which ultimately was my love. Like that was my bread and butter was critical care nursing and ER medicine because it was wild, crazy, anything goes. I worked nights for six years. Um, it was a wild and wildly fun part of my life because you would walk into work never knowing what you were going to get, whether it was a heart attack, a stroke, a homeless person, someone on angel dust or PCP who like chewed off their fingers, like you name it. <laughs> and, and so, um, so I had a really fun time there. And um, if there were better ladders to success and more opportunities for me to have been a mentor and a teacher, I might have stayed in the emergency medicine world for forever. But I ended up getting presented with these opportunities throughout my life that just sort of led me more toward leadership. And I ended up starting to work in concierge medicine a little bit when I was doing the periop job with the plastic surgeon because he had really high net worth individuals that wanted high touch care. And I just have a specific way that I like to practice with my patients that I think 
a lot of patients that need and want high-touch care really gravitate towards. And then I ended up ultimately moving into private healthcare, working as like a nurse lead. And then ultimately, like now I work as a nursing director for a private concierge healthcare company with this really phenomenal doctor. I do enjoy building out systems where you focus your care on the patient, the whole patient, you focus your care on listening to the people that you're taking care of, hearing their entire story and putting these puzzle pieces together. That's a part of healthcare that I really enjoy, creating these relationships, educating people about preventative care, about how to take care of yourself moving forward so you can keep yourself out of the emergency room. And so that's really fulfilling to me. Um, and being able to teach other people how to do that is really fulfilling to me. I think that when we first started talking about working together on Bridget, you had, I remember meeting up at a coffee shop during the day and you're like, yeah, yeah, I can meet right now because I'm, I'm working nights later. And th that was during that time, right? That you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just remember being like, who is this girl? Like, is she like, I, I was so impressed by you from the get go. Um, but I think it was back then that we started working together. On yeah, Bridget, yeah, it was. And like I said, it was it's it was such a crazy time in my life. Like I was literally just stacking it on. Like I would go from night shift, get off at like 6 a.m. in the morning, 7 a.m. in the morning, go next door to the surgery suite, work on a case sometimes until 6 p.m. at night, and then go home and have dinner and then go to bed. Like over 24 hours of waking, working it, like thinking about it now is just exhausting. I don't know how I did it for, you know, almost six years, but I did, which, you know, I'm simultaneously proud and also just kind of like, why, why would you do that to yourself? But it, it really like knowing that that was the time you and I kind of gravitated toward each other and started working together. It really does tell me that even in all of the chaos of doing those things, I was still looking for a place to firmly plant my feet. And I'm so glad it ended up being here and doing this because Bridget's taught me a lot about myself too. Like it's reaffirmed my love of teaching, mentoring, guiding, um, sharing experiences, storytelling, helping other young girls and women develop or redevelop their sense of self and self-worth and confidence and how that impacts everything you do in your life from your personal relationships to your job and everything in between. And it's also given me space to be just a more open, creative person and that fun, loving, vulnerable side of me that, you know, I'm, I'm so happy I have a community and a place to share that with that's safe. And, you know, that I've built such beautiful friendships and relationships with, you know, people I love, such as yourself. It's, it's like, it all, it all came together somehow. <laughs> it all worked out. It totally has. And I, and I see, and I, I've seen it firsthand at our events, your ability to make people just feel very comfortable and to break down situations, to break down conversations. I think that those skills that you built, you have continuously built nursing um, and all of the different, you know, forms of nursing that you've, you've accomplished is that you, it, it's almost like you're able to see them as a full being, a full person, you know, with their, their current situations, problems, exciting opportunities, but also, you know, future potential, past issues, seeing them as, as whole 
360 people. Um, and I can, I can tell how much that means to them. It, it lights up. I've, I've literally seen our girls come in with hesitation, not knowing really what they're getting into and then having a sidebar conversation with you or something. And then suddenly like, it's like they're energized with this completely new energy. I've been so honored to watch you bring your full self to the table and um, in turn welcome these full incredible teen girls into our rooms as well. I think it's always hard to take a compliment, but it's also, you know, this is really meaningful. But I think my hope is in any relationship that I develop, I try so hard to, I think, having a very full and vibrant family and, um, you know, frankly, having a family that's had a lot of mental health issues, a lot of PTSD, depression, anxiety, that's trickled down, that just exists. I think one in five people in the world have a mental health issue. So it's it's not anything new, but it's definitely still stigmatized. But I think, you know, having that in my family and also having a family that's so open to discussing a lot of these things has been a gift because I get to one not ever feel ashamed anymore of who I am, how I'm feeling, the things that I'm carrying. But I can also turn around and look at other people and say, everybody has something going on and it's layered and it's complex and it goes deep and we have no idea where those things even start. And I think when we meet other people, you're scratching the surface of what's happening on any given day at one point in time. And I would hate for somebody to meet me on a bad day and prescribe their thoughts of what I am based on that little moment. And so my hope is when I'm meeting other people and I'm establishing relationships and whether it's a patient or a friend or somebody I'm just meeting for the first time is to, you know, I try to go into it with just a blank slate and inevitably people will show you exactly who they are. You just got to give them time. And that's it. And you just listen and watch and and just try and be your full self. But I, I really hope other people do that too. So we can all have like more genuine interactions and relationships. Yeah. I think that what you just said really is like, to me, feels like the definition of confidence. And I think that when you do bring your full self to the table like that, you inspire other people to be confident around you in whatever context that you guys are spending time together. Um, So obviously confidence is one of our big pillars at Bridget. And the other is communication. And I know you to, you know, in addition to all of your professional accomplishments, what an incredible personal life that you you have and that we've shared as friends. You also are this super talented writer. You have, you're constantly working on poetry. You're just, you, you write in the way that you speak. Can you share, like, how do you keep that writer side of you going? Do you have any like daily rituals that you do to keep that creative side of you alive? Like, tell me a little bit about that. Um, It's a lot. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's a lot messier than it sounds. Um, Mm -hmm. I, Kevin can attest to the fact that I am a tornado. (laughs) Like I, (laughs) I have, I, I don't really have a tactic. I wish I actually wish I was better at journaling. Um, like I wish that I were the type of person I try to be. I think the best I was ever at journaling was actually when I was pregnant. 
because I was doing it every morning. I was like writing to someone. And, but for me, really my creativity, just like it comes in like lightning bolts. Like I could be honestly, like I have the best thoughts when I'm in the car or like if I listen to a specific song and it just like sets the vibe for something and it gets me thinking in a tangent. Um, but a lot of the time it comes out of nowhere. Like I, I've never been diagnosed with ADD, but I wouldn't be surprised if I had it because my trains of thoughts can be super tangential. And so what I do try to do is if I do have a feeling, I'll either like I'm in the car, I'll give myself a voice note, which inevitably sounds so, so crazy afterward, but I can build off of it. Or I'll take the time to like jot it into the note section of my phone, which is now like thousands of files long. It's so bad. Um, and then a lot of these things get pieced together by like mood or feeling, or like I try and reconstruct things. Or if I'm, if I'm ever feeling like I've had a crazy week at work and I need to like unplug from just being, you know, type A productive and taking care of other people, I'll sit down and kind of go through my notes and be like, okay, what unfinished thoughts do I have that I want to sit with and work on? And that's kind of, you know, those are my most consistent practices in writing and creativity. And the rest of it is really, you know, setting a cadence for yourself, like, especially like with our work, like, we have to set a calendar, we have to be committed, we have to make promises to ourselves and each other that things are going to get done at a specific time. And then sometimes, you know, creativity is scheduled like that. But all of my personal like poetry and things like that, those come from my scatterbrain tornado moments, just like coming together. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a true artist. I feel like all the, all the greats, oh, they have those no uh, moments of inspiration and you just gotta like catch if it. Kevin were here you right know. now he'd like call me out he'd be like yeah she's like disgusting there's like shit everywhere <laughs> oh my gosh I feel like we're the same <laughs> I'm glad he's not actually would Andrew say the same thing <laughs> totally and I don't see it I'm like when I'm in the middle of something I'm that person that like I have to spread everything yeah. out so I can yeah, see it yes, all. Yes. You know, and everything has a place, but I'm taking up the yes. entire table. I've colors, different things, and like note cards everywhere. Arrows, and just arrows, like, arrows, arrows. I've seen your notes before. <laughs> no, they're ridiculous. But he's like, okay, like can we just put this away? I know away they just when you're back done? away quietly. <laughs> I know. I'm also the person that has like a hundred tabs open yes. and like each, it makes sense. Like if I have dealt with it, then it, I can close exactly. it. He's like, this is e extremely you, stressful. You <laughs> might forget. <laughs> like <laughs> the reminders. It all makes sense to us. Thank God we work. I know. Way. I know. Um, hey everyone. Here at Bridget, we take coffee super seriously. If you've listened to some of our previous episodes, you'll know that Asha's favorite time of the day is early in the morning before anyone wakes up with a cup of hot coffee. And mine is usually late, late at night when no one else is awake. But on either end of the spectrum, we need serious caffeination to power us through. For that and many, many more reasons, we are so excited to share Drew Coffee. Drew Coffee is incredible. It's not your average coffee. It's founded by Daniela Monet's partner in life and podcasting, Andrew Gardner. Drew Coffee is a small batch, sustainable coffee company that packs a quality punch like you've never seen. Not only is this coffee delicious enough to drink black, but they're fairly sourced from smallholder producers, their roasting process is clean AF, and their packaging is eco-conscious and on its way to being fully biodegradable. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. They even have a subscription-based service for those of us who need that extra autopilot feature. 
Because no detail is left out and the beans they source are from the best sources only, their monthly batches are roasted once monthly and limited. But there's nothing about this company that we don't love, and for a limited time, we're really excited to say that Drew Coffee has a special offer for Bridget listeners. Head to drewcoffee.co, make any selection, you won't regret it, and type in code Bridget, B-R-I-D-G-E-T, for 25% off. Trust me, your mornings will thank us. So I hate to have to like wrap this up in some way because I could literally talk to you forever and I plan yes. to look at the <laughs> crap out of you. Um, but let's, are you ready to transition into our fast five? Yes. Let's do okay, it. Let's do it. All right. What's your all time favorite movie? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I I don't know about all time, but I will say that recently my siblings and I have been on a what we do in the shadows kick. <laughs> so what is I don't even know what that oh is. Oh my god, it's okay. so great. The movie, it's like really, really oddball comedy. I don't know if you is it old? Oldish. Um, like like maybe 10 years old. The original movie is 10 years old and now there's a show on Hulu. But it's Taiko Waititi and um Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. They uh-huh. are vampires who are uh, flatmates together in New Zealand, <laughs> and it's just so odd and funny, and it fulfills all my dark humor, and then my siblings <laughs> and I can walk around the house hissing at each other like bats. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Note to self. Okay. Probably just so I, so I can understand you better in your <laughs> state. <laughs> also, Harry Potter. Like, everyone, oh, yeah, yeah, my family says yeah. that I talk like a Slytherin, because I, I have really... I'm very hard on the S's, so you do have strong S's. Yeah, I'm a uh, speaking parcel tongue. <laughs> <laughs> like you say, uh, I've I've mentioned this, but obviously, you say us like us. Oh, really? Oh, I can't you. wait to listen uh, back uh, on this. Soothing. Like it feels like <laughs> I'm just my heart like a little massage. <laughs> yes, I am a true slipper. Okay, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna tangent off that for a second fast five question. What house would you be in? Oh my gosh. In- so I've taken the quiz several times. It always says that I'm either Slytherin or Ravenclaw, depending on the day. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I see. I feel like I have the heart of a Gryffindor though. I don't know. I mean maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I don't know what I would be Probably either. Not. I think you'd be a Ravenclaw. I think I'd be yeah. a Ravenclaw too. Yeah. But I might have a heart of a Hufflepuff. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay, let's do a a more serious one for our third Fast Five. Um, How do you define success? Well, I think that is a complex question. I would say success is being content to sit with yourself for any given period of time to look at everything you've accomplished and say, like, maybe this isn't the be all end all, but I'm happy with this journey and I'm going to keep going. Uh, I think I feel that way about my marriage. Not that it's not the be all end all. That sounds wrong. But that, you know, you're you're solid in a place. And mm-hmm. I also think that success for me, having been through this recent loss of my own, would be to eventually be able to pass on the things I know to a future generation. And I think motherhood would be the ideal avenue for that, to be able to impart some of the things that I've learned and and some of the things I hope for the future and for the world to somebody who's young and malleable and will have to listen to me. So I think that that would be very successful. <laughs> 
Well, I think in many ways with Bridget, you've already done so much of that work and imparting all that you've learned in so many different facets of your personality and life um, to another generation. So you've already been doing that in so many ways. That's true. Thank you. Thank you for saying (laughs) Oh my gosh. Anytime. I'm full of it for you. Um, For number four, what is in your purse? Uh, (laughs) uh, Chapstick, band-aids, keys to my office, eye drops. I think I have a checkbook. Who still carries around a checkbook? I do. (laughs) (laughs) Babies, babies. Yeah, I've got like some earring backs in there. Um, Yeah. Doodads. Um, Well... I used to have some toasty bars in there, but they're in my stomach. <laughs> Any <laughs> snacks that are around me do not stay Same. for very long. Yeah. That's okay. We need fuel. Um, for the fifth, where is your favorite place in the world? Hmm. Okay. My bed at like 6 a.m. in the morning when it's like finally cold um, and the sheets are like all like just perfect. You know, you like, I always have such a hard time falling asleep because I'm such a night owl, but like come morning, I'm like, God, how could anyone ever leave this place? Um, Either that or, (laughs) yes, I have just gotten out of bed. (laughs) Either that or like, you know, 60 feet underwater because I I love the ocean and it's just like, it's like the calmest place like there's something about the extra pressure and the way I realize this actually about sleeping too like if you don't have a weighted blanket get one um because it's like you're being hugged and it just like takes all your anxiety away and it's like super helpful for sleeping so I love that but the ocean gives me a similar feeling where you're just like in a weighted blanket okay well to close off now that we've done our fast five I'd love, we like to always ask this question, but um, when you look back on your teen self, what's an attribute that you had, but maybe you didn't see the value in back then that you appreciate more now that you're an adult? Mm, um, I think as a teen, I always felt very out of place. I felt like an oddball, like I was never the one that was in on the trends like I would try and be but it would always just come up short like it'd like be super awkward and um I wish I had like a better example but I just know I always felt you know kind of out of place I was always very jokey and like always trying to like mask like my insecurities by like laughing or joking you know I did get made fun of a lot but I didn't play into it so much which I'm grateful for I do appreciate that awkwardness now because you know, you go through this really weird phase of your early 20s. And for me, I was like really trying to figure it out. And then, you know, I was so lucky that I got out of my own way. And really, instead of like searching for my person, I spent time searching for my people. And I really found those people and like you and your sister and a really close knit group of wonderful friends who are all incredibly driven, intelligent, kind, conscientious. I could go on and on and it wouldn't even scratch the surface. And I'm happy that I never stopped being myself because I didn't really know how to be anything else. And it just goes to show that like, be yourself. Your people are out there. You don't have to compromise who you are. You can be awkward in some of those you know, most of the time, those are the things that are most celebrated about you and that are the best parts of you. And um, it's it's really fun to like, just live in that light 
now and <laughs> be a dark, yeah. be a dark person when I need to be a dark person and be light and fun and goofy yeah. when I, when I want to be, and I can be my whole self and just show up and get on with it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like those things that we feel make us awkward are actually just like really vulnerable moments. Like they they are like the Lego pieces that other people can connect their Lego pieces to, yes. you know, that they're, they're the, the things that facilitate real authentic connection yes. with other people. Yes. Okay. So I love that you celebrate that because I so celebrate all those things. <laughs> Thank <in> you. you. <laughs> I love you literally from the depths of my oh, heart. Oh, I love you too. And I'm so honored to have had this conversation with you. I'm so excited that we'll be able to share this with our community just thank you for being all you are. Thank you, Asha. You are a wonderful host. And thank you for giving me a safe place to share. It's definitely uh, nerve wracking being on this side of the mic, but I am really happy and excited and proud to be here and to, um, to share this with all of you. Well, that's all we got. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness? 